Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and I am your host, Don Abernathy. First and foremost, let me thank each and every one of you for your continued support of our show and our podcast channel, and thanks to those who have become patrons on our Patreon page. Uh, thanks to your support, and because of your support, we have purchased more equipment, and hopefully you can tell on your end that the sound quality is getting better and better. And so with your continued support, we'll buy more equipment, we'll get uh, better mics, better boards, and uh, hopefully bring you cleaner content. So thank you all so much. If you want to become a patron, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. On the right-hand side, click on the Join Patreon link. There's three tiers, as you know. We go over this every week. One's a dollar, one's $3.50 a month, the other one is $7.50 a month. Choose the one you want. We thank you for it. Your support is greatly appreciated. And while you're there at WTSPWorldWar2.com, just go ahead and click on the uh, Amazon link. Save that to your desktop, your favorites bar, wherever you want to save it to. And the next time you go shopping on Amazon, please click that link. doesn't cost you nothing, but Amazon will send me a few coins to uh, help support the network and the show. And for those of you who uh, like our shirts, thank you so much. We have... Uh, Sold quite a few shirts in the past, and as you all know, most recently we have launched another shirt. It's the What's the Scuttlebutt Lucky Strike t-shirt. It is available on our storefront at WTSPRollWar2.com. Scroll down on the right-hand side, click on the t-shirt. If you're on a mobile device such as a tablet or a phone, the way WordPress works, which is the software we use to create our website, you have to scroll all the way to the bottom, click on the t-shirt, it'll take you to our storefront. Buy a shirt. Use the promo code ILISTEN, all capital letters. That'll save you $4 off your shirt. That's ILISTEN. And last but not least, for those of you who are trying to uh, work out, lose some weight, look better in your uniform, or maybe uh, just feel healthier and live a better life, go to sleefs.com. That's S-L-E-E-F-S.com. Whatever you want to buy as far as your athletic apparel, use the promo code D41040. That'll save you 40% on your uh, entire shopping cart. That's D41040 at sleefs.com. And last but not least, as you all know, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is recorded in the At Computer Studio here in Cape Coral, Florida. At Computers has been providing IT support for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. As you know, they primarily specialize in veterinary clinics, but not just veterinary clinics, all small businesses. Don't matter what you do. You need new servers, you need your network expanded, you need two-form authentication, you need online backups antivirus protection, computer repair, computer rollout, new laptops, new tablets, it doesn't matter. Don't matter if you need a 60-inch screen mounted to your wall, they can help you out. Now, for those of you not in Southwest Florida, some of you have already done this, and we want to thank you so much. Give Act Computers a call at 239-283-1120. They can help you out remotely. They will simply send you to their website, act-capecoral.com. They will ask you to click on the link on the right-hand side. Click on where it says click here for remote support. It'll download a small app, you give them the code, and voila, they're logged into your computer, and they can help you with all of your internet problems remotely, as long as your internet works. And that is going to wrap it up for all the plugs. But uh, once again, in all seriousness, thank you guys for signing up for Patreon. It's Patreon that helps uh, keep this network alive, and uh, thanks so much. Proposed in late 1940, and passed in March of 1941, the Lend-Lease Act was a principal means of providing U.S. military aid to foreign nations during World War II. It authorized the president to transfer arms or any other defense materials for which Congress appropriated money to, quote, the governments of any countries whose defense the president deems vital to the defense of the United States. 
by allowing the transfer of supplies without compensation to Britain, China, the Soviet Union, and other countries, the act permitted the United States to support its war interest without being overextended in battle. By allowing the president to transfer war materials to a beleaguered Britain and without payment as required by the Neutrality Act of 1933, the act enabled British to keep fighting until events led America into the conflict. It also skirted the thorny problems of war debt, such as those that had followed after World War I. The Lend-Lease Act brought the United States one step closer to entry into the war. Isolationists, such as Republican Senator Robert Taft, opposed the act. Taft noted that the bill would, quote, give the president power to carry on a kind of undeclared war all over the world, in which America would do everything except actually put soldiers in the front-line trenches where the fighting was. And joining us on the phone now... He is the archivist for the John Deere Company. He's joining us from the phone from Moline, Illinois. I probably mispronounced that, but with my speech impediment, that tends to happen on the show. Here he is, Mr. Neil Dahlstrom. Neil, how are you doing today? I'm uh, doing great. First and foremost, thank you for coming on the show, and um, I hope you had a great 4th of July. Um, you and I have been in communication for a while, but we knew with the holidays coming up, it would be best just to do the interview afterwards so that we can get all the family scheduling stuff out of the way. But uh, all in all, did you have a good fourth? Yeah, I had a wonderful fourth. I live in a, a neighborhood that has a kids parade that we've been doing since the Korean War. So all the kids get on there, decorate their bicycles, and and uh, ride around the neighborhood. So it's a lot of fun. Well, congratulations on your community for keeping that alive. I mean, from the Korean War, that's 1955, 56-ish. So, and so that's had a really good run, especially with how you know we as a society and as kids are getting with more interest in technology base, it's nice to see that people are still turning out to do the traditional stuff like the 4th of July parades, including, you know, having the kids join the parade instead of just sitting on the curb waiting to get their handful of candy thrown at them. So uh, congratulations to you guys on your community. Now you have an interesting job title. I reached out to you because one of our listeners sent an interesting article to me about something I was unaware of, and that's one of the things I like to do on this podcast is to share World War II history but also World War II history that we haven't heard too much about because, let's face it, we can get all that stuff on Discovery Channel, History Channel, Military Channel, etc. And this was an article that was sent to me, and it was called, um, it was about the John Deere Battalion, which I had never heard of. But before we get into that, let's get into you, your job title a little bit, and then we'll get into this article that was sent to me. You work for the John Deere Company, but what is your official title? My title is Archivist. I guess my official title is manager of, of archives and history um, for for John Deere. So uh, we're the company most people know us for our green and yellow combines and, and tractors, but we build road building equipment and construction equipment, um, lawnmowers uh, around the world. My job is to help acquire records to document the history of the organization. We were founded in 1837. Um, so we house uh, records, photos, films, manage the art collection, the historical equipment collection. So it's a, a lot of records and a lot of history. Well, it's nice to see that somebody early on in the existence of that company had the foresight to, you know, document, organize, and collect, and store, and, and maintain that history. I'm I am sure there are a lot of companies out there who are the same age as the John Deere Motor Company or older who didn't have that foresight. Maybe they're focused on other things. And that some point down the line, once they establish themselves and put some history down, they're kind of kicking themselves in the rear end saying, well, I wish we would have kept track of the first model of this or the early years that we did these things. 
And so it's great to think that you guys had, at least back then, someone had the foresight. Let's get this collection, uh, let's keep track of it and catalog it so in the future we know where we've been and where we're heading for the future. Absolutely. There, there's a lot of companies that, that do it. There's, there's some that don't. We've been fortunate. We've been doing it for over 40 years here. So we've, we've, we've done a pretty good job, but I, I'm an archivist, so I spend most of my time thinking about what we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So let's get into John Deere and the, their contribution to the war effort a little bit, and then we'll get into the story that I was sent called the uh, Look Inside the Untold History of the John Deere Battalion. But um, obviously... Before we got involved in the war, we had the Lend-Lease program, and obviously, um, in order to fulfill those promises on the Lend-Lease program, we had to look to the American manufacturing industry to help us, well, create the tanks and heavy weapons and Jeeps and all these things. Roughly what year was basically, did John Deere get involved into the um, production and contribution to the war effort on the manufacturing side? We, we started pretty um, early on at, at the John Deere Harvester Works where we built combines. Um, they, they were building components for um, airplanes, actually. Um, so, so basically, you know, factories were, were given contracts to build things they mostly knew how to build already. And in Waterloo, Iowa, where we built tractors and designed engines, we were building tank transmissions. Um, so most John Deere factories were had had contracts for some sort of wartime production. The uh, the airplane components came about through a relationship with our CEO Charles Deere Wyman, who had been flying planes since about 1915, 1916, believe it or not, and um, had 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 a relationship. He actually started um, after the war as a result of. Of, of some of the work we did during the war, he started the John Deere Aviation Department. So our corporate fleet of planes actually started with surplus World War II planes. It's, a, it's always amazing. Well, it's amazing, but it makes sense because of how many of the young men and women from our population. I mean, let's not forget that while our guys were over fighting the war, the women picked up the slack and started, you know, aviation flying the planes from here over across the seas. And so after the war, you basically have this huge demographic of people trained in what formerly would have been very unique positions, i.e. flying, operating heavy equipment, things mm -hmm. like that. And so it only makes sense. Not only do you have this whole generation of men and women who have the skill set, but they also have the discipline that went along with being in the military. And I often think to myself, perhaps maybe that's why that generation is known as the greatest generation, not only for their willingness to fight for our country and the world at that time, but because when they came home, they all had that discipline of going through boot camp through whatever branch they may have been in, and so that when they got into the corporate world or to the farming industry, whatever their skill set was, that discipline carried over and things probably got done more proficiently. There was less problems in the workforce as far as people doing the jobs in which they were instructed to do because they had already been trained to do the jobs you're told to do. And so I often wonder if all that discipline coming from being in the military is part of what gave the generation that title other than the fact that they went and fought. I'm talking about in the civilian years after the, after the war. And I, I always wonder if that's why things have changed so dramatically as far as how, um, you know, we kind of work in the workforce nowadays opposed to compared to, you know, the 50s and 60s. It's just always kind of an interesting thought, I, I feel. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot to do that. 
and also, you know, a lot of people who served, um, you know, who weren't weren't maybe 18 or 19, but some of these folks grew up in the Depression, and their earliest memories are maybe, you know, struggling through the Great Depression in, in the late 20s and early 30s as well. So you add that to the mix. Uh, when the war came, raising victory gardens, scrap drives, um, you know, fuel conservation, all these things, they they didn't live in a world of excess and there were so many sacrifices on an individual basis that I think that that contributed to their mindset as well. Well, you kind of just sparked a thought in my head with when you said growing up during the great depression. Well, we also got to think, well, who was their, their parental figures, the generation who was part of world war one. And so right. here you is, you have a generation that was raised by, once again, a large demographic of men and women who are very patriotic because they saw what happens when your freedom and your whole way of life is under is being threatened by a third party. And so you have that generation raising another generation. And because of where we were at a pop culture aspect and technology aspect, things were still rather small. A majority of the country were made up of small town and farmers. And so pretty much the whole country had that quote-unquote small-town feel. And it's and I think all that was a mixture for the, for lack of a better term, the American pie that was created from the generation who fought the war and went on to uh, you know help build the country and build the world to uh, where it is or where it was, I guess I should say, throughout the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I think that's an entirely true. And it, just, just, just to be in that era, you know, if you go back to World War One and you have this great technology, technological change going on in the country. People are driving automobiles for the first time. Farmers are driving tractors for the first time. You know, you're, you're, you're listening to the radio for the first time. You have all this technology, but on the other side, you also see how harmful this technology can be um, if, if, if applied to war. So I think it's this very kind of tenuous view of the world uh, where you can build these amazing ships like the Lusitania, and then it can be sunk, and you have this, these these catastrophes and I think there's probably a lot of people questioning um, what the world is all about at that period in time. Well not to go too back far in the future but you know we just dipped our toe a little bit into World War One, and now going back to the beginning of this interview when you said the date of the founding of the John Deere company did John Deere have any real um, meaningful for lack of a better phrase because I'm going off the fly here um, war contribution to World War One, because I know that's when we really start transitioning from. The, obviously, we still had the horses, but that's when the advent of tanks and more motorized warfare got into play. Did the John Deere do any manufacturing for World War One at the time? Uh, uh, Deere did. There, uh, it was in the form of ambulance wagons, of uh, kind of retrieval vehicles. Sure. Or um, we we built we built wagons for the Red Cross. Uh, we actually built. Um, uh, some ammunition for the, the, the Russians, believe it or not, um, for some of the allies. So there were war contracts there. Going back um, even even to the American Civil War, John Deere introduced its first riding cultivator in 1863. Reason being, wounded veterans were returning from the Civil War and weren't able to walk behind their, their walk behind plow or their cultivator anymore. So you, you needed some innovative way to, to get farmers back to work and so one way you do that if you're missing a leg or a limb is you actually put them in a seat so they can drive a team of horses uh, from a sitting position as opposed to having to walk behind the, the farm implement. 
And I never really gave much thought into that either. But once again, just going based off the fact of how much of the United States population and economy was based off off of farming, especially you know post the Civil War, it would only make sense that once again here you have a large population of your young men who are coming home from the war, those who are lucky enough to come home from the war, especially during the Civil War time with rudimentary you know field medicine and things like that that yes, you would need to be on the cutting edge of creating equipment that would allow a veteran farmer to come home and perform the task to take care of his family, even though he may be missing a limb or multiple limbs. And so it really shows not only the ingenuity side of John Deere and the engineers at the time, but not only that, but let's be honest, they really helped gave these veterans a way to provide for their family and to contribute to the economy and the community as a whole through farming and the producing of, uh, you know, produce and livestock. Absolutely, and it's 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 such a familiar story to World War One to to World War Two, the Civil War. Uh, if you're leaving your kids at home, your your kids, your your wife, they've still got to keep the farm going uh, in your absence. And, and and so now you're redesigning equipment, you're building equipment that they can operate. That's more productive, that's safer. Um, design equipment for different different body sizes and, and types for different parts of the country. It's it's what the company was founded on in 1837. John Deere built a, a better plow that could be used in the Midwest that no one had built before. So it, it was a company that was built on how do you how do you improve? How do you come out with the next thing? that's actually of, of value. I think it's easy when people think about history to think, okay, well, we're in an age of rapid development and advancement. Well, that's, that's all based on your contemporary view of the world. If you were alive in the, during the Civil War and you came back to a writing implement, you'd never seen that before. It would have blown you away. Sure. And, and so, you know, we're very much a product of our times and and, and John Deere has been a company that's always been kind of pushing forward on that, which I think is pretty amazing. Well, speaking of pushing forward, we're going to push forward back to the future. Not <laughs> to quote any bad 80s movies, but we're going to go to roughly around November 12, 1942. Now, we said at this point, through the Lend-Lease program, John Deere had started manufacturing airplane components and tra- tanks transmission. And I'm sure for those of you listening at home, when you hear John Deere and War Effort, your, your mind automatically goes to, tanks because okay you got a tractor you got a tank it's not a it's not a far leap but when you throw the airplane components in there i was kind of scratching my head until you know obviously you said about his his uh relationship and his love for flying and that's where the airplane side went in but the war department and john deere they did something i would say was pretty unusual at the time and that was the formation of the um what was soon to become affectionately known as the John Deere Battalion. Can you give us a little history on that and how that came to be? Yeah, and, and this was something that, that several uh, manufacturing companies did at, at this time. And, and it was just the idea of, okay, well, you, you know, you, ha- you have this, this enormous army and they're driving tanks and, uh, you know, ships and airplanes and, and, and everything that you can think of. Well, someone's got to keep these things running. Uh, they've got to be refurbished when they come back, um, and, and they're damaged. So you, you go to organizations who actually build this sort of equipment and who have this technical capability. And, and for John Deere, the idea was, well, we can go to employees, and we can go to John Deere dealers 
who have service techs, who have people who work on all of this equipment, and uh, let's put their skills to use. And, and that's exactly where this idea of the John Deere Battalion um, came. And, and so they, they put out the call in, uh, in, in, in the summer of, of 1942 and had almost 1,000 employees and, and, and dealers answer that call. And, and, and try to enlist, about 700 of them, not quite 700, um, actually enlisted uh, in five companies of the John Deere Battalion. Interestingly enough, um, as most of my listeners know, and I'm sure as you know as well, the average age for an infantryman and an enlisted man, you know, World War II, um, let's say NCO enlisted men, you know, it was early, mid-20s and then 30s, but for someone like 33-year-old, Sully Sullivan to put on his uniform for the first time to join up with the John Deere Battalion. I mean, especially at that point in time, to be 33 years old, you're probably more likely than not well established. You have a family to take care of. You got a, you know, a piece of property you got to pay for, and so for him to join up, and that's kind of what this article is about. Because correct me if I'm wrong, one of the um, requests in the will of this gentleman after he passed away later in life was he wanted all his uh, self-documentation about being part of the John Deere Battalion to be donated to your guys' company and to put in your archives so you can share that story, correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. And when when I, I sat down to write this story, it's, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time over, over, over the years reading about the John Deere Battalion and reading about production at the John Deere factories. But, but when you do that, it, it's often not very personalized, mm-hmm. and uh, you know my my grandfather served in in, in the Navy um, during the war. My wife's grandfather um, was a was a CB during the war, and I knew we had this collection from Neil Sullivan, and I really wanted to to follow his journey. So we have four scrapbooks that he kept that he compiled after the war. He seemed to always have his camera with him, and and to to look at it through his lens of his experience was, was pretty amazing. Um, I, I don't think he was married. He, I think I wrote in the article, he was a bit of a mama's boy, it seemed like. Okay. And he, he wrote, you know, he, he just, he's what you would expect. He's, he's a guy who I don't think had ever really left home. And now was on this, uh, this, this adventure around the world. And, um, you know, he missed home. And, and, and he wrote about that, and he was anxious to get home, but he knew there was something bigger that he, he was a part of and had to stand for, which is just amazing. Now, what was the core, um, I guess, core responsibility or main use when using the John Deere Battalion? Um, what was their main skill set? What were they used primarily for? What um, branch were they associated with? So they were, they were actually part of, a, of an ordnance battalion, um, but they they spent most of their time in uh, Warminster, England, and they 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 did repair work essentially. So anything that came back that that was damaged, that was battle tested, they they got parts, they got it up and running, and they got it back into service. So so they were kind of behind the lines doing that sort of work to keep the machine running. Yeah, it looks like they did a lot of work on the M3A1 light tanks, the M42A2 medium tanks, the M6 heavy tanks, 105 millimeter howitzers, and and not to mention the jeeps, the tanks, and the motorcycles. So they were basically an all-around 
engineering crew whose job it was to keep the motorized division of the United States Army's moving, at least as far as, you know, where they were stationed at in that uh, general area. Yeah, absolutely. And and they were they were um, in, in, involved in getting everything ready for the D-Day invasion. Um, so, and, and when, when you look at it through, through the lens of somebody else like Neil Sullivan, you know, they were also a group that they weren't on the front lines. So they had downtime too. So just seeing kind of the, the camaraderie of the men, some of their excursions into town, all the things that they were seeing for the first time in a different part of the world, is is just such a unique perspective on on what it took to survive on a daily basis sure and you know it's for the cynics among us it's one thing for a company to say hey let's send our boys and our equipment overseas to contribute do our part but uh the ceo went a little step further did he not um yeah he did he uh he uh he put his money where his mouth was. Yeah, he put his money where his mouth was. He he uh, actually served himself, and he was a World War One vet, so he he understood that life. He spent some time in France during at the end of World War One, but he uh, he he was in charge of the the farm machinery and equipment division of the War Production Board. So he actually moved to Washington D.C. He resigned his position at Deere and Company as, as president for two years and uh, served in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, he was commissioned as a colonel of the Ordnance Battalion, and basically, I mean, who better to lead these guys about equipment, not only that you're manufacturing, but that you have become intimately um, familiar with as far as training and getting the job done in a, an affectionate, fast time and under the pressure of, you know, the, the conditions. But then, you know, then the CEO, and not only that, but, now you have a commander who already has a relationship with a you know a battalion of men because they're already familiar with him. They know they can trust him. They've worked under him in the civilian world, and so who better to take suggestions from or commands from than the guy who you took it from back home? Because one could argue you're an employee of the John Deere Company. You sign up for this battalion. You go through all your training. You get overseas, and then some nobody who has nothing to do with the industry comes and starts. Issuing you, issuing you orders about how things are done, one could argue that that would lead to, you know, grumblings and, you know, well, what do you know about it? I've been knowing this for years. Well, I know about it because I'm the guy who was telling you how to do it back home. I was there, you know, we're all in this together. And so it really makes sense on a logistics side to have that uh, transfer made. Yeah, I think it makes all the, all the difference in, in, in the world to have someone with that experience, with that background. Um, who's actually helped, you know, design some of that tech technology and make sure it, it gets built efficiently. And you're coming from the private sector um, where you've got to do things as, as efficiently as possible. He, he joined Deere um, first in, in about 1915, right out of college, left to serve in World War I. He was actually injured in a, in a flying accident. Um, re-enlisted re a year later, uh, went and served in France for a while, came back, and he really became the driver for tractor development at Deere. Um, and, and actually during World War II, one of the things Deere tried to do was, was build tanks out of John Deere tractors. Uh, they, they called them the Armored A. The Model A tractor was a John Deere tractor of the day, and they basically 
um, tried to armor the tractor. So it's it's a you know it's just one of those things that uh, you know we we always hear about things that actually happened. We often don't hear about things that they tried to make happen but just couldn't make a go of it. But it, it had had basically two machine gun turrets in the front, and and the the reports. It was tested at Aberdeen, and, and the reports just said anyone who's sitting inside of that thing is going to go deaf if they're hit. But they were built as recovery vehicles. Sure. And and they just never really were able to make it happen. So there's still a lot of R&D going on because there, there were limitation orders for all of these these companies. And at Deere, we weren't allowed to to introduce any any new product during the war. So there's there's other things going on to help help win the war effort. Well, as with comes with combat and comes with long, stretched out periods of war, um, one's ability to go home is based on a few options. One of them, obviously, is injury, and two is service. And one might expect, well, if you're in the John Deere Battalion and you're repairing a lot of vehicles and things like that, um, you may be minimized on your potential for awards or um, injury and things like that, and so you're in it for the long haul. And Mr. Sullivan was, as you said, you know, the John Deere Battalion prepared us for the D-Day landings. But I see all the way up after the Battle of the Bulge, when Company F joined a convoy that moved through France on June 9, 1945, um, a situation arose where John and the guys, and I'm sure more than just John, and other guys too as well, and that is. Necessity is the mother of invention, and so the the engineers at home can come up with ideas, situations through foresight and planning. But there's always, you know, that the quote is the best laid plans are only as good until the boots hit the ground. And we all know the stories where with the hedgerows and the tanks. Well, apparently at some point, uh, John found himself in a situation where they were running into an issue and he needed to come up with a solution or at least he took it upon himself to come up with a solution to which he won an award for. Can you give some details on that? Yeah, uh, so so he, he received the Bronze Star and uh, it's, we, we don't know specifically what he was working on. That's one of those frustrating things when you, when you go through someone's scrapbooks or photo albums or, or journals and things. Um, we just know that um, there, there were some statements around his conception of, of, of practical and time-saving fixtures, they called it, which they couldn't procure otherwise. So basically what that means is they needed something done. They didn't have the parts, so he designed them and built them and got something back in service. What, what those things are that went back in service, we don't know. What he designed and built, we don't know. But, but like you said, it's... it's um, you know, for, for someone like him to receive the Bronze Star, to, to get get something back in service, I think is, is a testament to the work they were doing and how everyone everyone does their part. You know, I, I got to imagine maybe if you're not on the front lines, there is a certain amount of guilt. If you are on the front lines, there's a different type of, of guilt. Um, and, and so everyone's got to figure out a way to do their part and contribute. And, and I think that's that's the Neil Sullivan story is, he he did what he was there to do, and and he did it incredibly well. Well, and you know, because of the military talk, and when it comes to these you know documentations and these certificates and these you know awards, and the lack of information, it just lets the one's mind wander. What there's it could have been something as insane as a 
landmine clearing device, or it could have been something as practical as a device that allowed them to change the wheel hub on a Sherman tank 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes faster than was done previously. It could have been a whole sleuth of things, but it was definitely something that was important enough that his NCO made the suggestion, hey, we need to give this guy some credit for this thing, and then the people who looked at that, and people all the way up the chain of command, it was definitely something that was impressing enough to not only warrant the suggestion of being uh, nominated for the uh, Bronze Star, but to actually be awarded it. It just lets your imagination run wild of what those things could possibly have been. It does, and it, it's really why we're, we're trying to put um, articles like this out is, is for, for archives, we, we have documents, we have records, and they're, they're very much kind of self-contained that we don't necessarily know what happened before or after. And, and by, by putting these sorts of, of stories out, what I hope happens is people read them, they learn about them and say, oh, well, I know, I know this piece, or, um, hey, I know someone who's maybe related to this person. We, we, we hope that, that we can kind of continue the, the discussion here. And uh, even if we got something wrong, to, to say, well, you know, this doesn't really make sense. Maybe something else makes a little more sense because we, we just we, we want to give all these people their due for the work they did, for the effort they did, whether it's Neil Sullivan for going above and beyond as a member of the John Deere Battalion, We've done articles recently on early female employees at Deere, and it's always un unnerving to put out information that you don't feel is necessarily complete and you don't know everything. But it's been really rewarding to have people contact us and say, hey, I know who you're talking about, or, or here's another piece maybe that, that you might be missing. Who knows, maybe you'll get that uh, golden ticket one day where somebody will call and say, hey, my grandfather was a friend of his who happened to be like the doodle in his diary book, and here is some weird device he drew one day with the name Sullivan next to it. Perhaps this is what you're looking for. You never know. That's the crazy part. Yeah, and we're, we're also fortunate. So after the war, um, John Deere actually held a reunion for the John Deere Battalion every five years. So a, a, lot, of, a lot of the veterans actually came back to Moline, and they'd, they'd spend two or three days together, and, and that just became such a such an important part of, of their lives. And those reunions were held all the way. Uh, the last one was held in 2000. I want to thank you for what you do. Obviously, one, to be an archivist and to archive all this stuff and to research it and to put it in a easily consumable format is one thing. But um, the best of archives really don't mean much if no one can see them. And so for you to find select pieces, to consume it yourself, and then put it out there, on a web page, you know, this particular story, for those of you who are interested in reading the whole thing, because we didn't go through the great detail, because, you know, my job is to get you to want to go look at this stuff, uh, go to johndeerjournal.com. Um, that's johndeerjournal.com, and you can find this story. I look inside the untold story of the John Deere Battalion. And, um, Neil, thank you so much for what you do. Is there any other information you want to get out there to our audience to uh, maybe send them to any other... Um, links, pages, social media sites, things like that? I, I think JohnDeerJournal.com um, is, is the big one. That's where we write all of our, our history articles. Certainly invite everyone to, to visit the John Deere attractions. We've got the John Deere Pavilion. We have a John Deere Tractor and Engine Museum in Waterloo, Iowa. And we actually um, 
operate the John Deere Historic Site, which is an 1840s historic site. That's where John Deere built that first plow and ran his business for 10 years. Um, we've, we've got a fully functioning uh, blacksmith shop at, at the John Deere Historic Site. So we're, we're a company that believes very much in, in preserving its history and, um, you know, talking about skilled trades, talking about um, the innovation of all these uh, amazing um, pieces of equipment that have been built over the years. So, you know, check out the John Deere Journal and 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 um, let us know if, if there's some ideas you have and some things that we should be looking into. And once again, thank you, Neil, so much for what you do. But before I let you go, you just kind of sparked another thought in my head, and you said something that uh, I think until maybe within the last five years, we've kind of overlooked, at least here in the United States, and that is skilled labor as far as, you know, getting your hands dirty for the longest time, or maybe not completely long, but for a while there, there's a lot of emphasis put on, you know, um, the academic route. And so the industrial side kind of hurt a little bit, and um, I think it's starting to take a, a, a turn back towards the... Um, the manual labor again. I know my nephew who just graduated high school. He's going. He's actually going to school to be a welder. He's learning welding at all levels, and then I believe he's actually going to take that skill set and join the Navy, and go into the Navy with it. But I do know that there seems to be, thank God for all the light that Mike Rowe has shined on through all his years with Mike Rowe Works and you know dirty jobs and all that. But I think we're getting back to the point where we're starting to put a little emphasis and pride back into our manufacturing and our skilled labor force. Yeah, it, it, it takes all kinds, all, all skill sets, all you know, diverse backgrounds and experiences. All those things have to, to come together. And you know, I think talking about the John Deere Battalion and World War II is a perfect metaphor for that. Um, you know, you have to have diversity of, of thought and and skill and and everything to to make it successful. His name is Neil Dahlstrom. He's the archivist for the John Deere Company. Neil, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I hope everything's well and you enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. This week on Failed to Fail. Guest number four on the Failed to Fail podcast is a gentleman I've known for a long time, but we will get down that road later. It's Mr. Christopher P. Stanley. He is the uh, partial founder of uh, a children's book company that you may be aware of if you have young children. The first book they came out with, I believe, was called The Tree Watcher, which was very successful, which led them to go on to starting their own children's publishing company called Jump Splash Books, but I will let Christopher explain that all to us because no one knows better about that than him. Joining us on the phone from my home state, Ohio, Mr. Christopher P. Stanley. Chris, how have you been? I have been very well, man. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to talk to you. If you don't mind, I want to touch on this uh, the education sure. for a minute. So, um, you know, in school, like I was always identified as like a bright kid. Mm-hmm. However, I was never on the honor roll. You know, I was not. Do you remember the Renaissance Club? Mm-hmm. Like I was not. Uh, I was not in those things. And I, I had found that if it was something 
I loved and was passionate about, like history, for example, I was dialed in. I knew everything there was to know, straight A's. You know, on the, I was an AP history. I took the college test, got a perfect on it. That same year that I got a perfect on the, the AP U.S. history test, which also got me credit, college credits, I failed geometry and had to go to summer school in Columbus Public. Wow. Right. So <laughs> something wasn't meshing there. And as I look back now, you know, it, it, the way our education system is designed, it is for people who fall right in the middle. You know, we try to continuously fit square pegs in the round holes. You know, our education system, this isn't groundbreaking. This is known. It's designed from the Industrial Revolutionary model where it's factories. You know, that's why we have bell schedules and we go from here to here to here. That's how it's designed. And so people who, you know, you are clearly a very intelligent driven man, you know, but they're just like you were saying, oh, LD, you put them in here, you know, because you couldn't do calculus. How many times have you used calculus in your life? Actually worse, I can't do like, division. <laughs> right, you know, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, like for me, like why did I fail geometry my, my junior year? You know, it, it, our education system, this is going to be a whole different tangent, but it, it frustrates me. So I have, um, my daughter is on an IEP for reading now. And uh, just to see, you know, to be in those, that's the, the seat where you were, you know, it, it's so frustrating that we just, we, we refuse to evolve on our education policy, and it, and it drives me crazy, but... You'd probably be jealous. I'm sitting here staring at three uh, artifacts of Lucky Strikes right now. Oh, my God. I am jealous. And, you know, here is a great story for you about Lucky Strikes. Now, first of all, I have a replica of Lucky Strikes from the... Um, in Conneaut, Ohio, you know, they do a mm-hmm. D-Day reenactment. Yeah, that's on my uh, and, bucket list. Yeah, it's incredible. So I have a, uh, you know, a reconstructed, like, Lucky Strike that I keep in my truck at all times, but... A couple years ago, this is, I don't know, four years ago now, uh, I was living in Columbus at the time, and it was an old house. It was built in 1949. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just an old crappy house. And finally, like, you know, our, our air was getting through, and so I, I called people in to um, clean out the vent. So they were in there for a while, and when he was done, the guy came out and was like, hey, uh, when was the last time these vents were clean? I was like, I don't know, man, honestly. You know, he's like, well, I don't think they've ever been cleaned. And I was like, what do you mean never been cleaned? He's like, I don't think these have ever been cleaned since this house was built. He's like, look at this. He pulled out an event, a full pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes. White or green pack? What's that? White pack or green pack? It was a green pack. To hear the rest of this episode with children's book author C.P. Stanley, simply go to failedtofailpodcast.com, d-410.com, or simply look for the Failed to Fail podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast distribution app.